Amen, amen. You guys may be seated this morning. Well, thank you for worshiping with us. I'm grateful that you're here, and you're fortunate that my wife has a no-shorts policy at church. Otherwise, you'd see me enjoying my white legs up here and being a whole lot cooler. So you're welcome. Thank you, Kelly. As we get started, I want to welcome you guys. I'm grateful you're here, and I pray that you're encouraged by what God is doing in our midst. I want to make a note that if you'd like to give, you are able to give online. You can give online, you can give via text, you can scan the QR code, you can give as you exit. There are many ways for you to support God's mission, not just with your finances, but with your time and your treasures as well. So thank you for serving and giving and supporting God's mission here. Today we're going to be looking at Psalm chapter 63. Psalm 63. We're looking at this psalm and we're really looking at this idea of hope and despair. I've titled this message, Hope to Our Despair. And really, as we begin to look at this, we're looking at this Psalm 63, very similar themes that we see in Psalm 42. You remember that from a few weeks ago, and Psalm 42 was written about a crisis that David was experiencing, and this Psalm, Psalm 63, is actually written by David right in the middle of that crisis. So we've kind of gotten the the big view of what's happening from Psalm 42. Now we're getting into nitty gritty, the first hand count from David of what's going on. Now, if you perhaps think about this crisis, maybe you don't remember it. Let me explain what this crisis is. So David's son, Absalom, has rebelled against him. If you remember this story from a few weeks ago, David has a lot of children by a lot of different... And David's son, Absalom, has a half-sister that's assaulted by one of David's other sons, his stepbrother. And so Absalom rightly is upset and angry about this, and so he kills his half-brother, and he runs from Jerusalem. He flees Israel so he can escape judgment. Well, while he's away trying to escape from judgment, that bitterness, that anger over this doesn't go away. His revenge didn't satisfy him. Rather, he goes off into exile and he convinces himself that it's all David's fault. David's the one to blame. It's his son. If he had just been a better father, this wouldn't have happened. If he had been a better king, this wouldn't have happened. If he had set the right conduct and standard, this could have been avoided. So Absalom works himself up and he returns to Jerusalem intent to overthrow David. As he comes back to Jerusalem, he launches a pretty successful PR campaign and within a few years has positioned himself as a rival to David. He gains so much power and authority that even David's own leaders and followers, his closest advisors, begin to think, maybe Absalom's a better choice. Maybe he's right. And one day Absalom makes his move. He gathers his armies and marches on Jerusalem in the middle of the night. Well, David rightly flees. He has no army. He has no advisors. He has no power. He's got to go to protect himself, and he flees. In the middle of that story of him fleeing into the desert, this is where the psalm's written. He's writing it right in the middle of this, and David is experiencing something that I think we all have dealt with, this feeling of despair. Right now, as he's writing the psalm, he's wondering, can anything go right? 
He's hoping that things might get better, but he's just not sure how. My question for you today is, have you ever felt this way before? Have you ever felt despair like this? Like you've been driven into the wilderness by your circumstances and you're abandoned and alone? Maybe you're like David and you have felt thirsty and faint. Maybe you've wondered if there's any way out of this momentary despair. See, David certainly feels this way right now as he's writing this psalm. But this psalm doesn't end with hopelessness and despair. Well, why is that? You see, it doesn't end with hopelessness and despair because David throws himself upon the rock of ages and clings tightly to him in the midst of the storm. You see, David's answer to can this get better? Is there any balm to this wound of despair and brokenness? His answer is not to say no. His answer is to say yes. The answer is my relationship with God. My answer is the God that I have made a covenant with. I want to give you hope and encouragement that if you're here and you're struggling with despair, with fear, with anxiety, with anything like this, there is hope. There is hope to be found in your relationship with God. Simply put, if you're struggling today in any way, your only hope, the only place you can begin to find healing and hope is through your relationship with God. If you would, I'd like to read through this psalm as we begin our time together to meditate upon the words of God. If you would, would you stand with us as we read God's word together? Beginning in verse 1. O God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for the jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. Would you go to the Lord in prayer with me? Father, thank you for your grace, for your mercy for offering us hope in the midst of darkness. Would you clear all distractions away from us, Father? Would you push these things that are weighing upon us aside for just a moment so we might hear from your word, so we might hear you speak from your word, Lord. May the things that are proclaimed and said not be of my speaking and will, but of your voice and will, Father. Lord, we give you all the glory. We pray these things in your name. Amen.
You guys may be seated as we begin our time here. I want to start with verse 1 because this is really painting the picture of where we are beginning our journey. And our first verse as we're looking at us, our first point is that we're, we've got a pit of despair. This is our pit of despair. Look back at verse 1. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. David begins this passage here. He's desperate. And he's grasping for some type of life preserver. He starts with this affirmation of who God is. He's got this cry of, you are my God. And he's doing two things here as we start. First off, he's acknowledging his relationship with God. This is him proclaiming to God and perhaps his private prayers and his writing. He's proclaiming to him, I am your child. And because of this, I can come to you. It's this continual reminder for him of this covenant that God began with Abraham thousands of years ago. He's reaffirming this position before God, saying, I am your child, your treasure child. Because of this covenant, I know that you will hear me and you will keep your end of this bargain, this covenant we've made. You, God, will remain faithful. Then the second thing he's doing that I think is perhaps more important, he's not just crying out to God, but he's reminding himself of this truth. You see, this is the beginning of David starting to preach the gospel to himself. David's in the desert. Maybe he's alone. He's got a few companions, whatever it might be. And this is him reminding himself of who he serves. This is him reminding himself of the power and majesty of God. He's telling himself, this is who God is, and this is who I am supposed to be. He's not coming to God with what I would argue are bold or brash statements about faith and this, this dramatic personality that David seems to have. You know, sometimes he just is, is too much, right? I think here he's just simply trying to grasp hold of something in this dry and desert land that's full of despair. He continues on and he says that earnestly I seek you. I think earnestly is a good word here. It's an interesting word. It means seeking with a sincere and intense conviction. He's not just looking for God to show up to the party and say, I'm sorry I'm late. Couldn't help, but, you know, traffic was bad. I missed my alarm clock, right? Like, this isn't what he's looking for. He's looking for the God who parted the Red Sea and saved his people. He's looking for the God who toppled Goliath. He's looking for the God who can rescue him from the very depths of his despairs. He's not looking for a God who is simply there. He's looking for a God who is living and active in his world. Now, maybe at this point you're asking, well, Walter, why do you think he's in despair, right? Like, he, he seems like he's in need, but would you really classify this as despair? Look at just some of the words he's using here, right? My soul is thirsty. My flesh is fainting like I'm in a desert with no water. David's a little dramatic sometimes, but I don't think I've ever used those words to describe happy and healthy times, right? 
I've never been sitting in my house in the air conditioning with a bottle of water beside me. Woe is me, I'm so thirsty. You haven't either. You see, here in verse one, David feels like God is far off. He feels like he's been abandoned. He's longing to hear from God, to experiencing his presence again. What can he do? What can he do here? Well, David doesn't end the psalm here in verse one, that if that's all we got, this would be a pretty terrible psalm. Woe is me, I'm dying. No, he walks us through what I believe is his, both his prayer and this kind of running, reminding monologue to himself. See, in the next few verses, he looks back at what God has done in the past. He reminds himself of what God is doing now, and he anchors his hope on what God will do in the future. So here in verse one, he's flailing, and the rock of ages rises up in the middle of the storm to smack right into him and to cling to him so that he might experience these truths yet again. Well, let's go into the next few verses, right? As the first section, we're gonna look back at the promise. Look with me at verse two. So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live in your name. I will lift up my hands. He starts with this language of reflection, right? He's looking back upon God in the sanctuary. Remember right now he's in the middle of the desert. He's got no physical access to the temple. He's reflecting back on a past experience with God. He's thinking back fondly encouraged upon some memories of corporate worship. We know that because his reflection here in verse two is very specifically about beholding God's power and glory. He's not thinking about that fellowship meal. He's not thinking about that great Bible study. No, he's thinking about when he's come to the temple and he has seen God move in his power and glory. He has seen the very presence of God arrive. And so he starts his prayer, his reminder, with remembering the work of worship in the temple. This draws us to an important thing we need to consider here. Coming together, worshiping on Sunday, that is something that we do so often by rote, by just pure momentum, right? This is what we do on a Sunday. We gather. We're in the South, right? This is what you do. If you're not playing a round of golf or having brunch, you go to church, right? That's what we do culturally, yet... When we gather on Sunday, this isn't about a cultural thing. This isn't even about us and about what we desire, what we hope for. No, when we gather on Sunday, this is about God. This is about God. You see, what we see here on a Sunday is a reflection of the power and glory of God. Yes, it is intended to do something in us today. We are to be immediately transformed by the word, by the corporate singing, by the gathering of the saints, but we're full today. We're comfortable today. I mean, maybe not temperature-wise, but you understand what I'm saying. We haven't gotten to the stress and difficulty of our week yet. Things are good right now. I had one are great, okay? Like, this is how the world is going. We're okay. 
You see, this service is intended to bring its power to bear in our lives, not just on Sunday, but particularly in the middle of the week when we're in the desert. When things get hard, when they get tough, when they get painful and difficult, we're to look back on these moments and reflect and go, I've seen the Lord move. I've seen him work. He will get me through this week. This moment can be sustained because God is present and living and active. You see, our gathering of worship is not just about us. It's about God and his continual work and movement in this world. It's to sustain us, to give us a full meal, to carry us into this week that we can look back upon and go, the Lord is good. I've seen him move and work this week. He is good now too. Now David is not just reflecting upon his time of worship here. He's rooting himself in this as a thirst. This is his heart for God found right here. In verse three, he tells us that God's steadfast love is better than life. Literally says that, that he wants God more than life. David is saying that life is better, life with God is better than all the other joys of life he can find. It's better than food and family, friends, health, etc. He's saying having God is greater than having all of these things. He's not denying that these things are good, right? I'm not saying your family's terrible, though you might have that opinion. I don't know. I'm not saying food's bad. I'm not saying jobs and any of those things are bad. But what we are seeing is not just that they are good, but they become idols for us. You see, he's warning us that if we begin to settle for these things, even if we have good intentions, we become worshipers of creations, not of the creator. See, David is fully aware of the fickleness of human heart. He understands exactly where the sinfulness of humanity can take him. After all, He's here because he has this stepchild with another woman that if he had just been a better father to Absalom, maybe he would not have a rebellion. Maybe if he had been a better father to one of his other children, he wouldn't even be in this situation. All because of his sinful desires of the flesh, he's here. David is fully aware of where our idolatry can take us. David, perhaps more so than anyone, understands that. He knows that in the past he has settled for things that are not of God, and he recognizes that he will likely do it again. Yet, in this very moment, he's preaching to himself that a taste of God, just a taste of God, is greater and more filling than anything else in this world. He concludes this section with this reminder for us. This reminder that the Lord is worthy of praise in this life. I mean, he says in verse 4, I will bless your name as long as I live. David could be bitter and angry here. By our standards, he'd probably be justified to be bitter and angry. Maybe he is, if we're honest. We don't really know what all is going on in his heart right now, but... 
He's dealing with it right here. He's addressing it. He's looking back at all that God has done and determines that despite his present circumstances, despite his pain and his sorrow and his despair, the Lord is still good. See, it calls to mind the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I'll read these for you. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, temporary. But the things that are unseen are eternal. David is anchoring his hope, his refuge on the fact that God is an eternal God. Yes, today is hard for him. This is a present time of need, of struggle. He is in difficulty. However, he has determined that God is his refuge and strength in this very moment. See, truly, I think that this valley that David's in, this area of despair, this hard moment is actually good for him. And I'll be honest with you, I know that as I say that, you might be thinking, Walter, are you an idiot? Hard things are supposed to be good for us? These areas of despair are actually good for us? Well, if what Paul said is true, that this momentary affliction is preparing in us something that is peculiarly suited for this eternal destiny we are on, then yeah, this moment is good for us. I know that we don't look for hard moments, right? Like nobody's walking around trying to find difficulty yet. Isn't it true that the hard times and the difficult experiences make you appreciate what you have in the Lord? I mean, isn't that true? See, God is using this temporary affliction to produce eternal fruitfulness in the life of, life of David and in our lives. Everyone wants this mountaintop experience, right? Where things are great, they're good, I'm so close to the Lord. Yet, when you look at basic geography, the mountains are the dry, barren areas. The valley is where the growth occurs. The valley is where things grow. And so David is looking at his life And he's recognizing though he is in the valley, he is in despair and darkness, he recognizes and affirms the Lord is doing something in me right now. And if I focus on my circumstances, if I look upon my despair and say, this is all that I have, this is all that it is, I miss out on what the Lord is doing in my life. I'll miss out on that full measure of glory and affection. And so David takes this moment. He looks back on these promises of God, this past work of God. But he's not stopping there. You see, he takes a moment to look forward into his present reality. You see, this next point is that we are to rejoice in his present 
provision. Look with me, beginning at verse 5. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me. So David continues to preach the gospel to himself by rejoicing in his present provision and circumstances. As he begins this this section that we're looking at in the last half, this is really rooted in a response to verses 2 through 4. He's saying that because verses 2 through 4 are true, because the Lord is good, because he has been faithful to work, because he is doing something in my life right now, then I can rejoice and have hope. That means my suffering is meaningful, my despair has a purpose, that my present circumstances are a part of God's plan and his glory. Because of those things, because of those truths, David now rejoices. He begins with proclaiming that his soul will be satisfied. You see, David is hungry right now. Maybe like you are. He's not looking for physical sustenance, though. He's not worried about things of the physical nature. But rather, he's looking for something that will fill this hunger that's in his soul. See, he compares this filling of his soul to eating fat and rich food. Take a moment, and I want you to think about the best meal you've ever had in your life. The best meal you've ever had. David is saying, that meal? The Lord's going to fill my soul with that type of meal on a regular basis. The Lord is actually doing that for me now by reminding me of my present circumstances, by showing the point of my suffering. He's feeding me right now. He's letting me eat and draw from his stores. See, I view this portion of this scripture of him wrestling with himself by looking inward and saying, soul, I don't know how you talk to to yourself, right? But maybe David's over here. Soul, you've got enough. You don't need any more. The Lord has provided you all that you need. You're okay. She's been reminded of this treasure that God is. And he is satisfied by this view of the Lord. He knows at this present moment it is hard. It is difficult. We're not taking anything away from that. But he knows this present moment is but a small blip in the grand schemes of eternity. And he rejoices over this temporary affliction. He literally says that I will praise you with joyful lips. I will praise you with joyful lips. He's grateful for this hardship because he knows that his faithful sufferings will be rewarded with a true view of God. You see, in this moment, in this section, he's really learning where his prosperity is truly found. David's a king. He's ridiculously wealthy. He's got incredible power. He's got everything you could ever want or imagine. And he's lost it all. Maybe it's a temporary thing for him. He doesn't know that right now. He's looking at perhaps the cliff and he's saying, I'll never get it back. 
I've got no money. I've got no home. I've got no resources. I don't have a friend in the world. I am alone and I've lost everything. Yet during this loss, he's discovered a rich treasure. He's discovered a rich treasure of God's faithfulness and his provision to him. Yeah, he's still poor and friendless by earthly standards. He's got nothing by earthly standards, but by heavenly standards. He's been blessed with immeasurably more than we can dream or imagine. You might look upon this, and if we're honest with one another, you might say, those are really nice words, Walter, but they really sound like empty words, right? They're, They're meaningless in this situation. Well, let's consider David's situation, right? Even if David was still in Jerusalem with all of his power, he had all of his money, he had his entire army, and he had all of his friends, would his problems be solved? No. They might even be worse because he'd be looking at a bloody battle in the middle of the holy city, a fight over the temple and the Ark of the Covenant with his own son. He'd still be in danger and at risk. Most important, even if he had all those things, he still couldn't do anything about it because he'd still be weaker than Absalom's current position. So you might say those are empty words, but even if we gave David everything he could possibly want in an earthly sense, could he change his circumstances? No. No. Therefore, David looks upon God and he considers God gratefully. Verse 7 tells us he's beginning to go to bed, or 6, pardon me. He meditates upon this truth and he recognizes that he knows he'd have nothing even if he had all his possessions, if God's not in control of it. He's affirming that the Lord is going to be the one who's going to have to work and to resolve these things because even if I had everything, I couldn't fix it. Verse seven, he leads us into a, what I think is a moment of worship and him reflecting upon his current position. See, God has been his constant help in his entire life. We, we are aware of the story of David. But particularly in this moment, he is very present and real to him. Psalm 34 actually tells us that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. And David right now is brokenhearted and is experiencing the companionship, the comfort of God. See, this is the Lord's present provision because David is not alone. This is why David's able to proclaim that he's been in the shadow of the Lord's wings. He knows that the God has been and that God will always be watching over him. Never once has he walked alone and he's been assured that this is going to continue. This is what David is finding, that his provision from God is not a temporary earthly measure, but one that is anchored in eternity. That's why he ends with what I would argue is just a continuing moment of worship in verse 8. So he proclaims this language that my soul clings to God. Now this word clinging, it's not a word we use very often I suppose, but it immediately draws to mind 
a child clinging tightly to a parent, right? We've all got that one kid who won't let go, who doesn't understand personal space. That's Molly, in case you didn't know. Like she, she's going to get right up on top of you and want to talk. But David is saying that his soul is holding tightly to God. I think David understands that if he were to draw away from God right now for any reason, that his heart would be enticed by the temptations of this world. If he were to not cling so closely to God, he might just try to make peace with Absalom and say, you know what, you be king, just let me have my life. He might try to make good with him. He might try to give in to temptation, simply saying, I don't need to be king. Even though God has put me here, I don't need it. You can take it. He might be willing to settle for things of the creation rather than the creator. But he's being reminded, he's being shown that it's by God's hand alone that he's being sustained even now. See, it's a confidence in God and in his provision. He fully believes that not only has God taken care of him so far, but he's going to continue to do so even now. See, this is the very definition of what we could call childlike faith, right? My kids know nothing, okay? They don't understand where food comes from. They don't know where clothes come from. They have no concept of money or anything, right? Like Perry's just like, go spend a few dollars. Like, do you know how many dollars are a few dollars, son? We signed him up for football and we've spent probably close to $400 on equipment just for him to see if he likes it, right? He's got no concept of it. like, you got me a helmet, right? That's it. Complete faith that mom and dad are gonna take care of him. Perry doesn't ask if we're gonna buy groceries this week. He just knows they're gonna be here. He doesn't ask if we're going to have the right clothes for him. He just knows they're gonna be folded in his drawer. Perry doesn't ask if we're gonna be able to get all the equipment for him. He just knows that mom and dad are gonna take care of it. This is what childlike faith is. This is the confidence that David is espousing in the Lord. He's saying, you know what? I don't know how you're going to do it. I don't know when you're going to do it. I don't even know if you're going to do it. But I do know that you'll still be king. You'll still be in control. And that I'll be with you. So it's probably okay. Truth is, as we look at this, we get uncomfortable when we start wrestling with portions of Scripture like this. As followers of God in the Western world, we are used to having some measure of power, of authority, of control in our lives. And what we have here is a complete surrender of all of that before the Lord. David is saying, you know what? I had all the power and I messed it up. So Lord, you do what you will. You're in control. You see, this is the position of a confident worshiper. This is not someone who's confident in himself, but rather confident in the one in whom he worships. Where is this confidence springing from, right? Well, he's not confident just because he's seen God move in the past. He's not confident just because he's seen God work in the present. Those are a combination. But really, I believe his confidence is rooted in the fact that he knows that God is going to continue to work in the future. Look with me in the last few verses. Beginning in verse 9. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. 
They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. You see, our final point here, the final answer that I think we see from David today is that we are to look forward to his restoration. See, David is now looking to the future. He's gazing off into the sunset. He's looking to what the Lord will do later on. His heart is full and he can truly, clearly evaluate his current situation and where it's going to lead him. He starts with addressing his enemies in verses 9 and 10. He's ultimately proclaiming vindication by God over his enemies. As I was preparing for this this week, some commentators don't like these last few verses. They take issue with it. I actually believe that these were added on by some maybe well-meaning editor. And I'll be honest, we don't see any real evidence of that. It just seems like a complete tone shift, right? He's gone from this hopelessness to hope. And now God's going to take care of my enemies and the king will exalt him. Well, I think James Montgomery Boyce got this right when he says of these words, if we're to be genuinely satisfied with God's love, it must not be in just some never-never land that he works and moves, but right here in the midst of this world's disappointments, frustrations, and dangers. You see, these words take us back to the very start of the psalm. If we remember, we're in a pit of despair without hope. We're trapped. We have no way out. We can't see a way forward. Yet here we have hope because David rightly believes that God will make things right once again. He believes that the Lord will vindicate him before his enemies in this life. And if he will not, then God will pursue perfect righteous justice and vindicate him in the next life. See, David is anchoring his hope and his Beliefs here, not just on what God might do in this ever-present moment of struggle, but he's saying, you know what? Even if the Lord does not deliver me from this moment, I know he'll deliver me to eternity and things will be okay. Verse 11 shows us, David's not just giving us empty words here. He's telling us in verse 11 that even if he doesn't find earthly victory over his enemies, he's going to find eternal victory in God. When he says here, the king shall rejoice in God, it's not a conditional statement. He's not saying, if I win, I will rejoice. He was saying, but the king, I will rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. Right now, everyone's saying, David doesn't worship the true God. David's not a faithful follower of God. If he was truly following God, why would he have fled Jerusalem? If he was a chosen king, why would people rise up and rebel against him? And David's saying, you know what? In this present life, I might not have victory and vindication, but one day they will stand before God and he will tell them, you are of Satan away from me. He's saying God will have perfect justice and vindication done. And that he doesn't have to have it all figured out because he knows God has it all figured out. David is proclaiming that all, all who swear by him, by the word of the Lord, by God, they shall exult. 
David is saying, win or lose, the Lord will reign and he and we will be okay. We'll be okay. As I was preparing this week, I was drawn to John Bunyan's work, Pilgrim's Progress. I don't know if you've ever read that work. It's a, it's a lengthy novel, but it's, it's worth reading. In it, the main character is a man named Christian. It's kind of an allegory of our life and our experiences with the Lord, our journey in walking with God. And Christian takes this journey to get to the heavenly places. He's, he's trying to get to heaven. And on this journey, he's captured about midway through by this giant named Despair. This giant holds him captive in his dungeon in the valley of darkness. And while he's captive, this giant Despair preaches evil to him. He starves Christian and his companion, Hopeful. He beats them with an inch of their lives, as Bunyan says. He even encourages them to end their lives. He's telling them, there is no hope to be found here. You might as well die because you'll never leave this pit of despair. After many days here, Christian decides that he wants to give in to despair. He says, there's no hope. There's no way of escape. I can't get out of this. I might as well do what he says and take my life. Like there's just, this is, this is, there's no hope. I can't go anywhere. His companion, his name is Hopeful, and he reminds him of where they've come from. He's saying, look back upon all the trials that God, that Lord has delivered us through. At this point in the journey, he's had over half a dozen trials and difficulties that he has been delivered through. He reminds them of where they've come from, and he encourages him to faithfulness. He says, let us pray. Let's pray and see if the Lord might deliver us from despair. And as they begin to pray, Christian remembers that he has this key around his neck. This key around his neck is called promise. And with a lack of anything better to do, they try this key on the doors of their cell. And they're able to get out. They try it on the next door and on the next. And they find themselves in the front door of the castle. And hoping against hope, they wonder, will we escape? Well, they open this door and they escape. At the center of the story of the rescue of Christian from his despair. At the center of David's story of his rescue from despair is the promise of God. See, at the very beginning, I told you the only answer to our despair is our relationship with God. It's only through our trust in Jesus that we can find the promise that will free us from the clutches of despair. That promise ultimately is that we belong to God. We belong to God alone. Paul understood this, I think, very well. I want to read from Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39. Paul writes, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, 
nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I think Paul covered the gauntlet of what we might experience. Death, life, angels or rulers, things presently happening or things that might come, nor anything else in all creation. None of it will be able to separate us from the very love of God expressed to us in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the promise, Christian, that David and that you and I are able to anchor our faith in. This is the promise that will see us escape from despair and sorrow. My question for you is, do you have this promise around your neck? If the answer is yes, then rejoice, Christian, because there is a way out of this cell, this pit of despair. If the answer is no, then, dear friend, rejoice because there is a way out of this pit of despair if you'll trust in this promise that is given to us from Christ Jesus our Lord. Today, in the next few minutes, you'll have opportunity to both rejoice in the Lord or come to him as a hungry pilgrim. We'll have a time of prayer and our worship team will lead us in one last song. And I would invite you during these next few moments that the Lord is moving and working in your life to come speak to me. would love to hear what he's doing and to celebrate and to explain this promise of God and why this gives us confidence and assurance. If you would, would you go to the Lord in prayer with us? Father, we are grateful for you. We're grateful for the promise that you have given us through Christ Jesus our Lord. That you have proclaimed that any that would have trust, that would have faith in Jesus, that have come forward and believed in the gospel, that have trusted in the very words of Jesus from the Bible, that have confessed their sins and received this forgiveness from him, would have this promise that nothing in this life or the next could separate us from you. Father, this is the key that would free us from the clutches of despair. Lord, would you indeed give this key freely to those who call upon you? Would you allow us to escape captivity from the clutches of despair and let us walk into the heavenly places? Lord, we recognize that we are in different spots. Maybe we're right in the middle of the hard parts, Lord. And I pray that you would sustain us through those hard places so that we might grow and be shaped to be more like you. Father, if we are on the mountaintop and we're rejoicing and celebrating, I pray that we would remember that same joy when we enter the valley. Lord, through it all, Would you let our eyes be on you? Would you let us rejoice in your grace and in this promise we have that nothing 
I repeat, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is found and expressed through Jesus. Lord, let us rejoice in the gifts we've been given, Father, and make much of your name. We thank you for these things. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.